0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Number one, with populism, I think you're going to
1: have
2: people with much more control of their sovereignty in their citizenship, okay? And I think in nationalism, what you're going to have is a collection of robust nations.
0: So robust indeed that they seem to be deciding that they can live without Steve Bannon, whose populist gang, the movement, appears to have ceased to proceed. My guests Samira Shackle and Terry Stiasny will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including India, Pakistan and what happens next time, and there will be a next time, there is conflict over Kashmir, President Emmanuel Macron's latest big idea for rescuing Europe from itself, and have modern culture wars made naming new streets impossible? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist Samira Shackle and the author Terry Stiasny. Welcome both. Uh, We will start with India and Pakistan, which both, at the risk of tempting fate, appear to have taken several steps back from the brink of war after the latest clashes in and above Kashmir. It may be that the most resonant consequence of the recent mini conflict is the craze inflamed in India for extravagant handlebar moustaches in homage to wing commander Abhinandan Vataman, whose MiG-29 was shot down by Pakistan and has returned from his brief captivity a national hero. But if there is one thing certain in an uncertain world, it is that Pakistan and India will come to blows to Kashmir over Kashmir, rather, again. The question now prompted is, and then what? Um, Samira, I'm going to start, which is a weird thing to do where Kashmir is concerned, by attempting optimism. Um, is there, in fact, something reassuring in how this has been managed? Because if we go back to where this started, which was the, the, the terrorist bombing of an Indian military convoy uh, in Kashmir, to which I suppose India was obliged to respond in some fashion or another. Um, Pakistan shot down one of its aircraft. They returned the pilot after very brief captivity. Um, Neither side seems to actually want a war over this, do they?
1: I don't think so. Although I think that what we did see, which was kind of worrying, was a real shift in rhetoric. Because I, I mean, the the kind of rhetoric around it has been in inflamed before. But you had Modi talking quite explicitly about. I think the word he he used was establishing a new normal. Uh, and he talked he's talked before about complete diplomatic isolation of Pakistan and and things like that. So I think there is a kind of ramping up, which is probably playing to a domestic audience in India. You know, more than actually a real desire for war. I don't think there probably is much of an appetite. A so domestic audience
0: in India, which is voting next month exactly, as well, of course,
1: exactly, um, exactly. I mean, I don't know if I would be optimistic necessarily. I think uh, uh, on in terms of an all-out war, yes. I mean, I don't think that I think there's a big appetite for kind of brinkmanship and shouting, and not necessarily for full war. But you know, the risk with that is that someone. Uh, makes a wrong estimation of the where the other side's threshold is and I think that continues to be a risk and certainly the conditions in Kashmir continue to be horrendous that kind of gets lost between the Uh, between the kind of clashing nuclear power narrative is that there is a very, very real um, kind of grievance on the ground in Kashmir against both the kind of Pakistani-funded militancy but also horrific um, oppression by the Indian military. I mean, that gets completely lost in this. There's a very, very real grievance and a real reason why uh, these things continue happening.
0: Uh, Terry, on the subject of that... um narrative of conflicting nuclear powers which which Samira mentions and again trying to be possibly uh, perversely optimistic is there possibly an argument here that what we saw or what we have seen in this apparent um, touch would uh, step back from the abyss by both sides the nuclear deterrent in operation
2: um i suppose you know that is one possible explanation in that you know certainly the way the rest of the world reacted to this crisis having not on the surface of things paid it any great attention, you know for for a while, that people suddenly leapt in saying, Look, this could escalate we know how far this could go we need to try and, and and stop it but i think part of the problem here is that the world's attention has been focused on on other areas i mean you know at the very time that this crisis was at its height we had donald trump going to vietnam to meet you know the north korean leader so they were focusing on that area of you know nuclear powers and nuclear risk and at the same time you've got discussions going on about the future of afghanistan which to a certain extent involves trying to you know involve the pakistani government in in that discussion, so I think the trouble is when you've got you know people that are engaged on on different conflicts. That something like the Kashmir situation can start to brew up, and there can be more and more minor crises that, as, as Samira was saying, can can escalate without people really being you know completely across it and engaged with it in a way that people might have been, say, a few years ago.
0: Now, Samira, what we wanted to talk about was what happens next time, because there, there, there will be a next time. Do you get the impression that? India and or Pakistan have learnt anything in the last few weeks that might uh, help them both avoid conflict in future? Because, which I guess prompts another question, which is if we've decided that neither side actually wants war, does either side entirely want peace either?
1: (laughs) I think that's a very good point, actually. I think in the short term, certainly, I would expect that we'll just see kind of repeated iterations of, of this kind of thing, which actually it kind of continues a trend of the last few years. I mean, there have been repeated kind of cross-border firings over the line of control and kind of um, skirmishes and responses and counter-responses, and then it kind of dies down for a bit and then it kicks back up again. So I think that kind of... um uh, I think that kind of pattern will probably continue to be repeated. And that's one of the things, actually, if you look at the the kind of academic discussion around the nuclear deterrent or not, so because the kind of scholarly opinion is quite divided about whether the nuclear deterrent actually does reduce risks or not, um, the one um, one kind of line of thinking is that uh, this idea of mutually assured destruction uh, might actually increase the likelihood of lower level skirmishes because each power thinks they're kind of safe to do, uh, to kind of be quite inflammatory and provocative because no one is really, you know, neither side is really going to want to escalate it to all out war. So, you know, that carries its own risks.
0: Um, Terry, as you correctly pointed out, the United, the United States was rather looking the other way while this was all going on. Um That being the case, if there if there is a great power vacuum um, and no disrespect intended to either Pakistan or India there, um, should that more logically be filled where this conflict is concerned by China, which, of course, has borders with both countries?
2: Uh, well, I mean, that's one. But obviously, you know, China has traditionally kind of favoured the, the Pakistani side of the argument in this. And when you, if you look at, say, the UN Security Council, I mean, the UK, the US and France have come up with a proposal to, to designate the the head of Jashi Mohammed as a, as a global terrorist. But that's something that China has been opposing. And I don't know what the, the current Russian position is on that. So normally you would say, you know, but maybe this is where the UN can step in. But as with so many other conflicts, the trouble is, you know, what if the so-called you know the old permanent five big powers have fundamentally divergent views on this you know how do you actually get everybody around the table to try to try and negotiate something when you know they've all got totally competing interests in the region so it's quite difficult to see that as being being a way
0: forward. Uh, Samira just as a final thought on this how much are leaders on both sides whatever they may or may not want where Kashmir is concerned beholden to their publics because what I'm asking there is There are some sort of, I guess you would call them geostrategic crises around the world, which are, you know, perennial obsessions of the governing class of that particular country, but about which no sane normal person actually cares all that much. Where does Kashmir fit in on that spectrum? Is it something that is a matter of genuine public concern, you know, among Pakistanis and Indians, or or is this something that just gets whipped up by the leadership on both sides?
1: I think Kashmir becomes a kind of, um, it's a kind of focal point for... Uh, And and so maybe Kashmir itself might not be a huge uh, kind of concern for the everyday Indian or Pakistani, but what it represents really is, which is the threat of the other. And that's something that's really stirred up by leaders on both sides. You know, we spoke about the Indian election approaching, Modi wanting to secure his strongman image. On the other side, uh, the Pakistani military, which takes up, I think, one of the biggest proportions of GDP of any military anywhere in the world, justifies its continued existence with this huge threat from India. So that really is a very kind of ever-present Idea in both countries because it's perpetuated both by politicians, by military leaders and by the media. So I think that really is a concern and that's kind of what Kashmir has become the focal point for.
0: Okay, well, let's move along now. Citizens of Europe, if I am taking the liberty of addressing you directly, it's not only in the name of the history and values that unite us, but because time is of the essence. Not my words, though I would like to think I had a few of you going, but the words of French President Emmanuel Macron, giving his part-time role as self-appointed guard of the Enlightenment, another run. President Macron published an open letter in an assortment of European newspapers outlining, among other things, some proposals for guardian... Guardian? Well, one of them was in the Guardian. For guarding European democracy against misinformation, comma, foreign and domestic. Um, Terry, as is very often the case where Emmanuel Macron is concerned, I often find myself thinking could you not have got somebody else to say all this? I, I, I'm not sure he's necessarily always the most helpful deliverer of his own message.
2: I think, I think maybe he's kind of been buoyed up, I think, by his you know, he's had the gilet jaunes, but he's gone out and he's done all of these town hall debates around France, and that seems to have kind of rescued his popularity a bit. So maybe he thinks that, you know, he's gone out and addressed the people of France directly, so now he can go out and address all the people of Europe directly in, you know, all 20-something languages that he's put this all up on the the presidential website and um, but calling it you know the european renaissance is that kind of classic macron slightly grandiose approach um, i mean i think it's i'm quite glad to be honest i'm quite glad that somebody is doing this that somebody is actually setting out well look here are some ideas about the future of europe here are some ideas about the issues that we've got to tackle let's have a big you know conference and discuss all of this whether it's actually Good practical politics, and whether he has a way through, you know, the idea of having a sort of a massive conference that could involve treaty revision. I think everybody he's sort of. You know, punch drunk from Brexit would just kind of go, Well, not another one. We're not starting this. But he's got some quite serious issues there about, you know, about borders, um, about Schengen, about asylum. And, you know, I think we've seen a fair play to him for trying to actually set out some kind of way forward.
0: Uh, Samira, to look at some of his uh, specific ideas, the the one that leapt out at me, and I I confess that I did not know this myself because it just struck me as the obvious sort of thing that obviously would have been taken care of. Uh, He wants to ban. Foreign powers from funding EU political parties. How on earth has that not already happened?
1: I thought the same thing. Actually, it's quite amazing, isn't it? It's, it's not astounding.
0: A... Yeah, I mean that that is just that yeah. is such a what could possibly go wrong um, yeah. loophole.
1: I wonder if it's because uh, maybe there's just no kind of European-wide directive on it and states are left to have their own laws on that kind of thing. That's what I wondered. Because it seems like, whereas in the past, I guess he's spoken more about, um, you know, kind of moving towards federalism, or at least that's kind of underpinned some of the things he said. This seems to be a lot more around kind of close intergovernmental cooperation. So when he talks about... um, Social security was one of the things and having mm-hmm. a common minimum wage, but he talks about kind of adjusting that, negotiating it together, but adjusting it for each country. Um, and so there's there's kind of interesting balance there between... Um, Between what's at a European level and kind of balancing it with member states, which I wonder is maybe a kind of um, preempting criticisms from the kind of populists who he's coming up against in the European elections.
0: Terry, did it strike you? Because it's struck me at least that a few sort of recent um, outbursts of, of grandiosity on the part of the EU or the constituent leaders thereof might be the glimmers of. Glimmers of how much they're really not going to miss the United Kingdom. These sort of strike me as things that would be easier to put together and easier to get off the ground without the UK complaining about absolutely everything uh, as the encroachment of the Brussels hegemon.
2: I think I think that's absolutely true. I think people, you know, we've, people have always said that Britain, w- w- it, within the EU, sort of formed alliances, groupings with other countries to say, "Whoa, hang on a second, we're not so keen about having you know all of these things decided at a European level." And maybe this is, you know, a way of saying to Britain as much as anybody, "This is what happens without you." I mean, he's got a few kind of interesting Brexity jibes in his sort of address. I mean, he says Britons weren't told the truth, particularly about Ireland. Um, Brexit is the symbol of a Crisis, um, and the, but then he goes on to say that you know maybe you, the UK will find its place in this kind of reformed Europe that he he likes the idea of, and he's talking also about Britain taking part in uh, in defence cooperation. You know, obviously different, slightly differently from NATO. But yeah, this is partly yeah his own his own way of setting this out. But he's trying to he's trying to slightly do two different things at the same time here. But um, I think what's one of the things that's interesting about this is it's not necessarily everything must be done by Europe. I mean, the idea that he's talking more about border security and although he says we'd have a common border police, he is saying about, you know, we should rethink the Schengen area by which everybody can, you know, travel without checks. And so maybe he's kind of responding there to... You know some of the worries about, about migration, and he's trying to sort of, again, play that slightly both ways
0: Samira, I thought the most interesting idea here was the one for and it's most interesting because it seems like a genuinely new idea not sort of a reheated or rebranded EU bureaucracy, which is what I think a lot of the rest of it was, but this idea of a European agency for the protection of democracies, and this is something that will respond to specifically new threats, um, cyber attacks fake news, um, and and so forth. Is, is that an idea whose time has come?
1: I think so. I think that all over the place, um, different states are Kind of uh, alert to the to the possibility of this of this threat and the kind of reality of this threat actually rather than possibility and so I think yeah I think that's definitely a reflection of the times and of something that needs action I guess uh, some people would probably question whether the EU which is kind of quite famous for being very slow as you just alluded to treaty um, <laughs> treaty negotiations and so on whether that's necessarily the best um, the best forum to do that but I mean I think having some kind of guidelines to guide me- member states wouldn't
0: go amiss um, just. Before- before Before we take a break, I do want to ask you each a brisk Brexit question. It is now 24 days, hilariously, until the UK is supposed to leave the EU. Literally nobody knows how that's going to happen or what that's going to look like. Um, Terry, I've been asking everybody this. I may have even asked you this before already. March 30th, will the UK be still in or out?
2: Uh, Still in because I think even if Theresa May gets her deal through next week, which is Unlikely they still need some kind of extension to get everything through, and it's not going to happen by the end of March.
0: Samira?
1: Uh, I've got a real rising sense of of dread about a no deal, so I don't know. Maybe I'll go and stock up on tuna now or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that optimistic (laughs) note, uh, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Samira Shackle and Terry Stiasny. Coming up next, what if you gave a populist insurrection and nobody came? The pendulum is
2: a-swinging, and these days, it's the city of Paris that's turning heads with retail innovation. Monocle Films traveled to the 16th arrondissement to sample Le Marché's new addition to La Grande Épicerie Family. Food is a lot of memory. It's memory with your mother, with your grandmother. Food, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. You have to find this uh, game with a product. I try in the architecture to have this sensibility. For a filmic tour of La Grande Épicerie
0: Rive droite, head to monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Samira Shackle. To the travails of Steve Bannon, who some may recall as the intellectual engine of Trumpism. Bannon's next big idea after falling out with his former patron was establishing a populist nativist movement in Europe. It turned out that there was a limit to his objections to foreigners telling the locals how they should be living. Sad to relate that Bannon's movement, imaginatively called the movement, appears to be moving somewhat slowly. the major populist summit they plan to convene is not happening, and Bannon's Belgian partner in the venture has acknowledged that Bannon has been a little too optimistic on what we were able to achieve. Um, Terry, part of my problem here is that I don't understand what the movement even actually entirely is, was, or wanted to accomplish, which may, of course, be the same problem that the movement has had.
2: I think that's part of it. I mean, it's interesting you were mentioning just now this idea that Macron was talking about, about uh, not having foreign funding of political parties. Now, that seems to be one one of the two main reasons that this has fallen apart. And part of its reason is because, Uh, within those individual European states as Samira was saying, uh, you actually can't go around offering people uh, political polling and political advice as a foreign national unless that is, in some cases, either declared or, some cases, it's just it actually is banned outright. And maybe what Macron wants to see is that, uh, at a European level, being something that you are not allowed to do. Um, you yeah, know, the main other reason appears to be, I mean, as the the co- would be co-founder of this um, this movement said, uh, he says, well, the trouble is most populist leaders don't talk to each other. Uh, and most of the parties that were approached by Steve Bannon said, um, thank you, but no thank you. And even sort of some of the, the far right parties, the populist parties across Europe, uh, turned around and said, well, you know, keep your money because either we're not allowed it or we don't want to have anything to do with you anyway.
0: Is, is it possible, Samira, that, that Steve Bannon's problem uh, is basically that he's such an unsavoury crank that even other unsavoury cranks think he's an unsavoury crank?
1: <laughs> it looks that way. Uh, but yeah, of course, there's this question of... Um, I mean, if, you're, if your stated aim is, uh, is kind of linking up with um, parties on the far right of the political spectrum who are generally very hostile to immigration and foreign interference, I think being a... Foreign nationals, are probably an interfering foreigner. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. There's a kind I think of other people are doing all the time, isn't it? exactly coming over here. Exactly well, staring up, Patrick. Mean,
0: is it but... possible on that level that w- w- what he has done is underestimated how much anti-Americanism there is yeah, among th- European populists?
1: I think he probably has, yeah. And I guess he did team up with a Belgian, um, with a, a Belgian populist politician. Uh, he did. Um, this
0: was Michael Modricarman.
1: Yeah, exactly. But um, you know, I guess these are inherent I mean of course they share commonalities um, you've seen that all over the world but these are effectively nationalist movements so and and in many cases kind of posit themselves as the opposition to a kind of transnational globalism uh, that kind of globalist European elite or whatever so actually uh, you can kind of see why for those movements the idea of cross-border cooperation isn't particularly appealing actually because they're nationalist
0: movements focused on what's going on in their borders but is there a difference, do you think, Terry, between European and American populism in that respect? They they do have in common a, a fear and dislike of certain classes of foreigner but at least to the best of my knowledge that and at least not yet there are no there are no for example french populists saying we need to keep the germans out and no germans saying we need to keep the austrians out they're, they're mostly talking about putting a barrier around a wider idea of a in their imaginations i'm sure white christian europe
2: Well, exactly. It depends. I think they are to a certain extent, because it depends where you draw the boundaries. I mean, there are people who are opposed to further enlargement of Europe. There are people who are opposed to, you know, allowing migration, allowing more states to join Europe. So that whole question of exactly where do you join the boundaries between you know, the people you like and the people you don't like is, you know, is more complicated. Um, yes, as you say, you know, this question of having nationalism, you know, they people cooperate to a certain extent within the European Parliament, which is what this is all focused on, the European elections, uh, which are coming up. Uh, I think, you know, one one of the big problems, I suppose is, you know, Bannon talked about you know driving a stake through the Brussels vampire. And, you know, he just doesn't seem to have been able to get any kind of critical mass to do that. A danger, I suppose, is if you're not allowed to publicly fund political parties like that, there is a danger that the money is still there, the intention is still there. And that money goes underground. And there's been enough countries that have had party funding scandals over the last couple of decades, that maybe that is something that people should be a bit wary of.
0: Uh, Smear, just a final quick thought on this. There will be European parliamentary elections in May, which which Britain may even find itself <laughs> participating in, which would be extremely funny. Um, but as is very often the case with European elections, uh, they are, well, they they tend to favour, let's put it, charitably motivated voters. So it, it is likely, is it not, that the, the populists are mm-hmm. going to end up doing dispiritingly well.
1: Yeah, as is always the case. Um yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the kind of common argument against proportional representation, isn't it? That it gets Nazis a seat at the table or whatever it is that, you know, so I think that's probably, that probably is what we're going to see.
0: And, mm. I mean, on, on, on that thought, Terry, do you think it will be a, a major populist surge or are you clinging to some optimism that the air might have come out of it a little bit?
2: Uh... It, again, it depends quite a lot on the individual countries. I and mean, as we see, if you look through the list of parties that Bannon approached, some of them, you know, within the country, within one country, there can be two different rival populist parties. So that you know, they're fighting out as to who who is the most populist of all. and I mean, one of the interesting things to watch is, say, what happens with Germany, whether they try to break their links with, you know, Viktor Orbán and Fidesz in Hungary, and to what extent those parties are allowed to be part of the the European mainstream and whether people sort of start to turn against them and say, look, these are not the kind of people that we want to work together with.
0: OK, well, finally tonight to Amsterdam, which is nearly ready to welcome new residents to a new neighbourhood being built on artificial islands. However, it is not yet possible for any of the burghers of Iberger to give friends their new address, as nobody can agree on what to name the streets. The suggestions of the committee responsible for such things are yet to find favour with Amsterdam's mayor, Femke Halsema. She has knocked such themes as heroes of the 1573 Battle of Zudeze, big favourite of mine, sure it's a big favourite of yours, Uh, leaders of slave rebellions or international dance styles. Now obviously I'm sure there are more available themes than that. It strikes me, for example, that fully 123 men have played in premiership sides for Geelong Football Club. So that's 123 ready-made street names right there. I I don't know what the people of Amsterdam are waiting for. Um... But Samira, there is a thing here, isn't there, that that it is going to get harder and harder to name streets after historical places, people, events or things because somebody will always complain. The mayor is, says she is, in fact, just considering just giving them numbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I thought that was quite funny. I don't know, I guess that, yeah, if you're... If you're I, I suppose it kind of depends on where and what you're looking at. I mean, there's... Of course, kind of contested historical legacies around things like um, colonialism uh, and and kind of events in the far past. I think um, in the UK, I think some councils really take an approach of looking just at local history and kind of local figures who've done something, which seems probably more likely to be inoffensive. I also quite like that in the UK, there's a policy that you don't you generally don't name um, roads after uh, someone who's still living in case they
0: disgrace themselves later. <laughs> it really is yeah. that a thing Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing thing. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you both I, I mean are there particular themes which you think are safe or possibly appropriate Terry if I was going to put you mm. in charge of some hypothetical conurbation, what, what would you go around naming the streets after
2: well it's difficult because everybody can you know at the moment we're in the middle of discovering sort of the skeletons in every you know every figure's closet sort of every musician every film star and I quite like the name idea of naming them after film stars I quite like the idea of there being sort of a Dutch Rutger Hauer Street or something if there if there isn't one already. Um, you know, it's, you know, quite well, maybe just yeah, you just give something, you know, like flowers. <laughs> I mean, that's, they're fairly uncontroversial but boring. But uh, I mean, it is. You know, if you look at the whole must of Eastern be Europe, Europe, they've had to. In they, I can't believe that there aren't. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe, they, over in 1989, people had a whole wave of changing all the names of the sort of Soviet bloc era streets. And that's still going on in places like Poland and, and Hungary, where they're sort of going through every little street now and changing changing the names back, um, or in Spain, uh, where they've changed lots of places from sort of Franco Street to somewhere else. So I discovered in Holland, though, uh, there is one place uh, named after Dick Bruner, but it's in Utrecht, who the creator of Miffy, the, the cartoon rabbit. But there is already, like, <laughs> there is a Miffy Square already. And apparently there's a cricketer called Brian Close in Britain. I think he's a cricketer. He and was. they want to name a street after him. And they're not calling it Brian, Brian Close. 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 <laughs> no, 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 just, which is the obvious thing. You just call it Brian Close. it has to be
0: done yeah well along similar lines it was somewhere in Yorkshire this did happen I'm not making this up the there was they were laying out a new suburb um, and they wrote down an amusing name for the street where the police station would eventually sit thinking we'll change it later but it turned out the police really liked the name so they've kept it can, can anybody guess what it was no, it, it, it is called Let's Be Avenue. <laughs> um, Samira, is, is there a particular theme or idea or class of street name that strikes you as appropriate as, as mayor of whichever city you've decided to be mayor of?
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the... The easy thing is to go really inoffensive, although I note that the Amsterdam mayor didn't do that with the dance styles from around the world, which surely would have been quite hard to get offended by, except... Somebody found (laughs) a
0: way, I'm sure. (laughs)
1: Um, One thing I quite liked was um, in Dartford, they've... They've named a whole load of streets after Rolling Stones songs on the basis that uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards met on the platform at um, Dartford Station, apparently. So you've got like Ruby Tuesday Avenue and uh, all of these. (laughs) You can't always get what you want street. (laughs) I quite like that. Although, I mean, you could argue it's silly. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what you do in Amsterdam, Van Halen.
0: I'm not sure. We're clearly of Dutch descent, yeah. uh, but yeah. but I'm, not, I'm, I, I'm sure I'm sure the Netherlands would claim them. There is there's an ACDC lane in Melbourne. I think it's really? ACDC lane. Yeah, but they weren't actually mm. from Melbourne. I don't think. Oh. I'm pretty sure they were from Sydney. Apologies to any ACDC fans if I'm wrong about that. Um, that but does bring us angry letters. I know, mostly from me, because that is the, that is the sort of thing I should know. Um, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Uh, Samira Shackle and Terry Stiasny, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Busceko, Rory Goodrick and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. More music next. 1900, it's Monocle on Design. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Millett. Thanks for listening.